0: Today's podcast was recorded on Sunday, October 30th, 2016 at Family of Christ. Pastor Dyer continues in his teaching series, Being the Church. For more information about our church, check us out at www.foccs.net. So again, good morning and welcome. I'm Pastor David Dyer, and it is my distinct honor and pleasure to teach you this morning, to open up God's holy word, to look here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and go through and be fed by the Spirit of the living God. As he transforms our lives from mere lowly bodies into servants of the living God, disciples who feed on his word, who are encouraged by it, and who live it out in transformed lives. This morning I want to begin in verse 16. Because the foundation for what we're going to look at this morning has to do with a clear understanding of what is the purpose of the church. Being the church is a lot different than going to church. Being the church says, I have a foundation in something, and I am called to live that out. Well, that something is in verse 16 this morning. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He, referring to Jesus, appeared in body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This confession of faith, this little mini creed, is the essence of the living church. It is not about whether or not there's a lot of red for Reformation Sunday. How many of you are, just go ahead and be honest, you're a little disappointed that Pastor Dyer's not wearing a red shirt. Yeah, yeah, I'll explain why I'm wearing black here a little bit later. There's an intent, there's a purpose. Reformation. Reformation seems to take us back. Our our history lessons go, okay, wait wait, wait a minute, What, what is Reformation about? Who was Reformed? What was Reformed. Well, this foundational belief, right, that Jesus Christ came in the body, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that means that God spoke for him, that he was seen by angels, a holy, a holy entity. That the nations preached not only from the Old Testament stories and and predictions and prophecies saying the Savior is going to come, but that the prophets after, the disciples after Jesus continued to proclaim this Jesus. And that he was believed on by the world. That people took at their core foundation the main message of Jesus Christ, which is, I have come to save the world. Lost to forgive sins, and then on his last day, raised from the dead, taken to glory, where he is now seated at the right hand of God. And that is the core information of the Reformation. And why did that need to come back? Why did that need to be taught? Because, quite frankly, the church had gotten out of bounds. The church for nearly 1500 years had started to care more about their ceremonies, had started to care about the colors, had started to care about more than these core things. Farmers used to complain, hey, I can't make it to church for mass, right? Catholic church is the only church available can't make it to mass and the priests were grieved in their souls oh my gosh, if you don't come to Mass, I mean, if you don't participate in Holy Communion, if you're not there to hear the word, I can't, I I don't know if you're saved. And the priest would take it personally and, oh, well, I just don't know. I don't know if I have any hope for you. And so they developed a technique so that he could be sure, the priest could be sure, that the members that were farmers who couldn't come to Mass would be saved. And you know what they invented? The church bell. No, seriously. This is where church towers with bells in them because when the priest would say on the night when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. Ding. And they'd ring the bell. And then they'd go. In the same way also, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink of it all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament. Ding. And the priest slept so much better that night that the farmer in the field heard the bell toll twice. That's where the church had gotten. Those in Rome and other places wanted a new cathedral and they said, you know what? I bet we can convince people that their sin, they're so guilty that we need to raise a little extra money Hmm, wonder what we could come up with. Oh, I know. How about you pay for forgiveness? They're called indulgences. And that's where the church had gotten. Pay for the forgiveness of your sin. Just hear a bell and it's all good. Where's the heart? Where's the commitment? Where's the discipling? And so young Martin Luther, one of the reformers, there had been reformers trying to reform the Catholic Church for hundreds of years, but finally they got a big-mouthed German. (laughs) That's what happened. God rolled out the big guns. I mean, a guy who early on in life wanted to be a, a lawyer. Traveling along in a thunderstorm, the thunderclap is very loud and near to him. And he says, God, just save me. I'll do anything. I'll even be a priest. And so began Martin Luther's life towards being a Catholic priest. And that's no easy decision to make, it comes with a lot of things, a lot of attachments. Uh, let me go back just a little bit to the Old Testament. You see, there, was a, uh, there, there were Pharisees, rabbis, people that led the nation of Israel, right, in sacrificial worship. And then, after the prophets began to say, hey, wait for a savior, wait for that final sacrifice, there was 400 years of silence in the church from God, no new revelation. And what happens a lot of times, right, I'm sure you find this maybe in your own life, when you feel like God's not speaking into your life, you start to go off and do your own thing, and you start to go your own way, and that's exactly what the church in Jerusalem did. The temple began to create more sacrifices that were necessary. They came up with 412 new laws. So that when we get to the time of the New Testament and we hear about a man named Saul, He was a great rabbi, a great teacher, a great man of God. He was keeping all 412 laws. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus goes, you don't need to follow all of that. No, you need to believe in me. The church went, how can we control behavior if they don't follow the 412 laws? Jesus seems to be just giving them a pass. What do you mean forgiveness of sins? That's too easy. And so the temple got away. And Saul thought that he was so godly, he led a group of people to kill these newfangled Christians. This is how far the church had gotten away. So God reformed Saul, gave him a new name. We now know him as the Apostle Paul. He too was struck down in a great kind of storm, blinded, and God saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Go, receive your sight in a couple of days, and then Saul changed his name, and spent three years learning before he began to proclaim the gospel to the known world on four, five, six missionary trips, planting church after church, which is where we find ourselves this morning with this text, 1 Timothy in Ephesus, where Timothy is the young, new pastor. And Paul has been preaching this, this as foundation, That Jesus came, that he was uh, filled with the Spirit, that he is recognized by God and filled by God, that he is used by God, and that this is the name that we preach and teach. Forgiveness of sins is where we are going, and there is no other truth. Quite frankly, it does not matter whether we wear red, but preach this truth. And so... Paul writes this letter to Timothy because he's a young pastor trying to lead this congregation, trying to be reformed, if you will, that they get away from the old sacrificial system, that they get away from the backbiting and the gossip and the nitpicking, but that they are encouraging this young pastor. And let me tell you, it's a good thing that we get in Scripture what encouragement of a pastor means. Because let me tell you, this job's no picnic And I'm telling you, I know your job's no picnic. This is not a a, whose job is harder or more difficult. I'm just saying, uh, some people think, Pastor, what do you do? I mean, what, you work one day a week? I mean, how hard can that be? But here, right? So with foundation in verse 16, we're going to go back to verse 1. So so if you're following here, I want you to go back. I want you to open your Bible. I want want you to be there in chapter 3. I want you to understand that what we've been called, if we're the church, and if we are actively being the church, here's where what being the church looks like today. One, you encourage your leadership, your pastors, our staff. And two, that you raise up the next generation. Because being the church means that we raise up the next generation of leaders. And let me tell you why this is important. The year I graduated from the seminary in 2003, a report had come out from our Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, stating that nearly 65% of pastors were getting out of the ministry before their five-year anniversary. because of unloving congregations, because of poor pay, because of poor support, because of poor, poor vision. And it's no wonder that we have 2,500 vacant Lutheran churches in the United States out of 6,500 congregations total. It's no picnic. So let's read through this and and let's figure out these two things, right? How to encourage your current leaders and two, how to prep for the next generation. Verse one, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. The word overseer is episkopos. It's where the Episcopal church gets their name. It means bishop, overseer. It's someone that has been given an authority. It's someone that's set aside. It's someone that doesn't do what other people do for their jobs or their vocation, if you will. No, they they get to preach the word, administer the sacraments, pray, intercede. They, They do a noble task. But I want you to understand that's not just your pastors. That's your worship leaders. That's those who lead your kids in in your student ministry and those who lead our kids in children's ministries. It's those who work behind the scenes in ministry support. It's it's those that unstop toilets. They have a noble task. Verse two, now the overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife. I'm thankful for this verse. I I can't handle the one I got. it's, It's all I can do, right? And I still don't measure up. Temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. I got to tell you something. I I, I did an evaluation this week on that list. I don't qualify. About 75% of the time, I'm good. I'm there. I'm golden. 25% of the time, I'm not temperate. That's my kids. I'm not. So I want you to understand, this is an incredible list. This is a a list that requires a bunch. And I don't measure up. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Now, I'm sure this is my children's fault, right? They they just don't respect me. (laughs) No. No, this is on me. And again, I I probably evaluate maybe 75% of the time we got a good thing going, but there's at least a quarter of my time, maybe half. I don't measure up. He must not be a recent convert or maybe become conceited, fall under the same judgment as the devil. I'm not a recent convert. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Again, I, I think sometimes great. Other times... I don't measure up. Our staff doesn't always measure up. The leaders that God has set before you, we don't always measure up. I'm going to tell you, you know where we go? We go to verse 16. You see, when we don't measure up, we fall on God's grace. When we look around us and go, man, my faith's not even strong enough. Everything is switching and moving around. And, man, I, I don't even know if I trust God anymore. In those moments, in those times, you know where we're standing? We're standing on God's grace. And I want you to understand something, that's where he wants you to. Dads, as you lead your families, this text is is just as much for you, right? To be temperate, to be obedient to the word of God, to not be a lover of money, to be gentle, to not be quarrelsome. Grandpas, this is the same for you. Moms that lead your children, this is the same for you. You just aren't called pastor. But it's what the church looks like that is being the church to creation, to children, to communities. Now, this next section: deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere. What's a deacon? Deacon is a is an elder. The Greek words presbyteros uh, is where the Presbyterian church gets their name, meaning that there are people who who are to lead people that are set apart. Now, in our church body, we have pastors and we have elders, and elders are lay leaders, usually, people that have been raised up, and and here's the qualifications for them. Worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, they must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. All of our elders are tested. Once a name is, is we have an opening, their name is suggested, I, I do my investigative work. I go see what people have to say about them, whether or not in, in professional life, they're respected. I, I listen, I see what kind of Bible studies they are in, or, or have they taught before. They, they go through the rigor, they don't know it, but I do my job. And if we asked all six of our elders, do they qualify? My guess is is there's not a single one of them that would say, oh yeah, I I got it. (laughs) In the same way, elders' wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy in everything. Yeah, I look at a man's family. Do you kind of feel a little heat rising on the collars? I mean, do you are just like, whoa, I'm glad pastors never asked me to be an elder. <laughs> like, obviously, if you're not an elder, then you get to slide. No. Husband of one wife manages children, household well. same kind of qualifications. Verse 13, those who've served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. I would hope this would be for every family. That you would live your life of faith in such a way that you are generally respected by your neighbors and your coworkers. Because that's always a good thing to hear, right? When your neighbor goes, wow, you, you kind of stepped up to the plate. That's awesome. And you go, good. That means somebody's noticing, right? And somebody's watching. Now, verse 14 is actually the verse to explain the whole point of why we've been here in First Timothy. It's, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. This is how we're supposed to be. This is how we treat our pastors. This is how we treat our leaders. This is how we treat the staff in our congregation is to lift them up and to encourage them to not be a bone of contention. And if that's the picture of how we are to treat our staff and our leaders today, it's no different for how we're thinking about our future leaders and our future pastors tomorrow. I was in sixth grade beginning confirmation when the wife of our senior pastor came up to me, Connie. Connie. Connie comes up and says, David, uh, have you ever thought about being a pastor? And I'm like, no. She's like, why? And I said, Pastor Spomer wears a black shirt with a white collar all the time. It looks like it's two sizes too small. His skin's hanging over and he sweats a lot. He looks hot up there. I want to be in shorts for crying out loud. I mean, I just want to be a regular person. She's like, art's a regular person. I was like, who's art? (laughs) She's like, Pastor Spomer, he has a first name. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed. (laughs) Then I went to work at a summer camp and my fellow staff at the end of the summer, hey, have you ever thought about being a pastor? And I was like, no, at least here I get to wear shorts. And on into graduate school, and I was gonna be a camp director, and, and people said, you you have a gift with with teaching and praying with people. Have you ever thought about being a pastor? And I was like, no. Until my own My own experience, it wasn't a bolt of lightning, but a humbling where I'm on my knees and God's saying, David, I have a plan for you. Are you willing to do this for me? And I'm telling you, there are sons and daughters out here this morning. There are people in your life, next door neighbors, that you need to be encouraging and you need to be asking and you need to be encouraging and praying over. You need to be lifting up because that's what being the church does is it says, here, this is where you need to be. And I was put in positions and situations as a young guy that no one should have been placed in, and yet I had prayer cover, I had giftings of the Holy Spirit, blessings from people, people to stand around me, to lift me up, to encourage me, and let me tell you, it's a good thing, because when I became a pastor, I died. You see, Reformation Sunday, everyone wants to wear red, and Reformation Sunday for me is my death. It's why today, black, because my desires died. God then moves in and he says let me lift you up. Do you need to remember your your the waters of baptism today? Do you need to remember that you were drowned? That you died to yourself? and that those who die, those who are drowned with Jesus will be raised, but raised to what God wants to make, what God wants to change, what God wants to transform. And some of you are saying, please transform my life. He will, I will guarantee you that he will. That's what he does, he's an expert at it. And the transformation of God's holy church means that we live out the gospel. God isn't up there shaking his finger at you going, do better, try harder. He says, I love you. We do, listen, I love you, and I want the best for you. Receive my grace. The story of the Reformation is our collective story, that we who are dead are transformed. And in that transformation, God's name is honored and glorified, and we're changed forever. Thanks be to God, right? Amen. And now may this word of the Lord truly strengthen your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until his return to take us home.